Well, what a privilege it is uh, to open God's Word with you this morning. And in my home church, it's great. And we get to continue our series on the giver of life as we journey through the book of Exodus. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 16 this morning. If you have your Bibles, do open them as we look at God's Word together. In this passage, we are going to witness a sudden attack of an enemy and the intense struggle of battle and God's ability to sovereignly protect and provide for his people. And as I was considering these themes these past few weeks, I was reminded of an experience our family had while overseas. For the last four years prior to moving here, um, we've had the privilege of living and serving in uh, rural Uganda, East Africa. And our little home off the grid, tucked in the bush by the Nile River, was a context all its own for our wilderness testing and trials. I remember one night our kids had asked if they could pile into one room for a sleepover. And Jan and I agreed. And so we got them all tucked in and set up camp. And they chose the girls' bedroom. And shortly after, Jan and I retreated to our room and we crawled under a mosquito net and we went to sleep. And it was around midnight that I felt something crawling on my neck. And I brushed it off and rolled over and went to sleep. And then I felt something crawling on my arm and then also on my face, and I sat up immediately. And I said two words that jolted Jana from her sleep, safari ants. And immediately we shot out of bed, and as soon as we did, those crawling sensations turned into really piercing stings. For those of you who don't know, I'll just direct your attention to Exhibit A. <laughs> safari ants are built to bite. God has conveniently designed half of their face for the purpose of inflicting pain, okay? And it may be slightly less obvious feature is they don't bite on first contact. They only bite when they feel threatened, which means they crawl into all kinds of fun places uh, before you know they're there. And then when you figure it out, it's only then that they go all kamikaze and bury their heads in your skin so hard that their butts stick up in the air, okay? And you break out every dance move you know to swat and flick and rip these things off your body. Well, back to the story, Jana and I fumbled through the dark to the shower and we're trying to pressure wash these things off us. And poor Jana, they're all in her hair. It's a really tricky place to get them out. And we're finding success, but every time we stepped out of the shower, we kept getting bit on our feet and on our legs. And when we turned the solar light on in the hallway, we found out why. Thousands upon thousands of safari ants had filled our house. and we followed this black rope that trailed through every room in our house except one room, the girl's bedroom. I kid you not, these guys came under our back door and marched right past the open door of our girl's bedroom where all our kids were sleeping. <laughs> they walked through our kitchen, through our living room, into the bathroom, through Hudson's room, through the hallway into our bedroom, and they stalked at the second door of our girl's bedroom. And they did a sharp U-turn came back onto our bed. <laughs> it was like there was an invisible wall, literally, repelling these ants away from our sleeping children. I have no idea who was praying for them that night. Um, crazy story shorter. Our kids slept through the night while Jan and I battled to keep our house from being colonized. 
we spent the next three hours and 13 liters of gasoline creating our own ant Armageddon. Little creature carnage everywhere. They just kind of shrivel up and die when you splash gasoline on them. It's really effective. Um, and our kids woke up the next morning. They slept through this, not just to the house, smelling like a gas station, but they woke up to this really powerful and personal testimony of God's care in their lives. We got to tell them this story that they slept through. And this was kind of a faith builder for us as a family, something we look back on and laugh about and wince at. Um, but as a family, we look back and say, yeah, man, God showed up there for us in such a neat way. And when we catch up with the Israelites in our text this morning, we find them in the wilderness on the narrow plains of Rephidim. Google Earth that. And they're about to awaken to the painful reality of an enemy invasion. And as with their previous trials, God is going to deliver them here, bring them through this conflict with an even greater understanding of his character and a further testimony of his care. Now, I'm seeing a lot of new faces this morning. I know some of you are going to just be jumping into Exodus with us, so let me give you a quick context up to this point. God has decisively redeemed his people out of Egypt. You know the story. He is now progressively refining his people in the wilderness. And part of this process is he's using a succession of trials, okay, crisis moments. These are not small things. And their purpose to reveal what is in the hearts of the people and to reveal what is in the heart of God for his people, namely covenant kindness and perfect provision. At Marah, the Israelites are disappointed by the empty promise of bitter waters. And they cry out and they complain. And what does God do? He draws near to them and he reveals himself as their healer. The one who transforms their suffering with his Torah. Making the bitter sweet as they listen diligently to his voice and walk in his ways. Then in the desert of sin provoked by the intense pains of hunger, again, the people cry out and they complain. And what does God do? He draws near and reveals himself as their faithful sustainer, the one who sends manna from heaven, the bread of life, to feed them every day. And then they come to Rephidim and they curse the heat of the desert sun and they quarrel. And instead of Pouring out wrath on the people, God graciously reveals himself as their source of salvation. He instructs Moses to strike the rock, and out of it flows water that abundantly quenches their thirst. And now we get to chapter 17, verse 8, where in the heat of battle, God will reveal himself as their banner of victory the one who empowers his people to fight and to prevail against their enemies when he is lifted up, when he is exalted in their midst. Exodus 17, 8 to 16. This is what the Holy Scriptures say. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us, and go out and fight with Amalek. 
tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and the people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord that we want to hear this morning. It's a pretty straightforward text. I was grateful John assigned this to me because it doesn't have a ton of interpretive challenges. The overall structure is pretty straightforward. Verse 8, God's people are attacked. Verses 9 to 13, they respond under Joshua and Moses' leadership. And then again in verses 14 to 16, we see um, the outcome or the aftermath of the battle. There is a declaration of judgment and a monument of praise. And it concludes with a revelation of God's name, Yahweh Nisai, the Lord is my banner. So as we consider those three movements, let's begin in verse 8, where God's people come under attack. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Up to this point, Israel's greatest enemy has come from within. It's their own heart, overrun by unbelief and ambushed by indwelling sin that is giving them problems in the wilderness, right? But now, for the first time, they face an external enemy. They are brutally and suddenly attacked by the Amalekites. Who is this Amalek? And why are his people attacking Israel? I found out in Numbers 13.29 that Amalek... Um, his people are described as a nomadic tribe who roamed the Negev in the desert region south of Canaan. Okay, they're nomadic. They, they, they just move and wander. And as far as we can tell, they primarily made a living ambushing other people groups and plundering their wealth. They're pirates, essentially. And if I had to summarize what these people are like, I would borrow a phrase from Don Cherry and brandish this meme. The Amalekites are a bunch of jerks, okay? If you're not into hockey, I'll explain later. But it's so much more fitting here than for the Carolina Hurricanes. And we understand a little more why when we trace their lineage. In Genesis 36, 12, we learn that Amalek is actually the grandson of Esau. Esau is the twin brother of Jacob, and Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you know some of the tensions in the history of the Jacob-Esau relationship, we probably have a better idea of what's going on here. 
It would seem the Amalekites had adopted that same spirit and attitude of their grandfather, envying and rivaling the descendants of Jacob and despising the promises that God had given them, perhaps even more so now that Israel's miraculous deliverance and sudden wealth was only affirming the blessing of uh, the promise given to them, the birthright. But beyond this grudge, we're not given any details why they attack. Perhaps they felt threatened with all the Israelites coming through their territory. Um, I wonder if they didn't, you know, covet this new miraculous water source at Rephidim, which is a big deal in the wilderness, right? They wanted the rockwork fountain for themselves. Maybe they saw all the Egyptian souvenirs that the Israelites were carrying and said, hey, this is some easy loot for us to score. We don't know their motive, but we do know their method. Look at Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 18. Moses tells us this, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. What is in view here is, is treacherous and cowardly. Okay, this is an unprovoked attack on the most vulnerable and defenseless of Israel's congregation. That phrase, cut off your tail, that's kind of graphic. I was looking into this this week and I was like, yikes. And it seems like they made some sort of military maneuver to sneak in and separate the people who are lagging behind from the rest of the congregation, people who no doubt were elderly, infirm, pregnant, nursing women, young children. This isn't an honorable act of war. This is a repulsive act of terrorism, and it enrages God, and it rouses Moses to immediate action. Look at verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Secondly, God's people respond. They ready the sword and they raise the staff of God. This is our first mention of Joshua in the book of Exodus, and he kind of jumps into the scene without any introduction. There's no formal introduction here, and I don't think it's necessary because the original readers would have understood who this guy was at this point. He didn't need a detailed lineage and description of his credentials. They knew who Joshua was. We will later discover that he's actually serving as Moses' assistant. He's around 40 years old. He has strong leadership skills and a knack for military management. And in time, he's going to succeed Moses to become Israel's new leader, taking the people into the promised land. But for now, Moses is the one giving the orders. And being 80 years old, <laughs> he's not in the best shape to uh, recruit an army and lead Israel in hand-to-hand combat, right? So he assigns this to Joshua. And I picture this conversation. Moses pulls his apprentice aside, Joshua. Move among the camp. You need to find men who are able. Do what you can, right? You're going to be going up against highly skilled, highly equipped warriors who are fighting on their own turf, and you have 24 hours. 
Yikes. If I was Joshua, I'd be seriously thinking about exercising my right to refuse unsafe work. Okay? The Israelites have no formal military training. They're completely untested in battle. This is a new thing. The resumes that the men submit to Joshua all read the same. Work experience. Slaves in Egypt. 400 years. Okay, these people are really good at making bricks. They're not really experienced at making war. But Joshua's not being funded to build a wall. He's commissioned to lead them into battle. So we can only imagine the encouragement he must have felt when Moses speaks these words. I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Okay, game changer, right? Now John has me beat on the Moses beard, but I have the stick. Okay. And this uh, staff, Joshua would have been really familiar with the role it played in their deliverance out of Egypt, right? It was this staff that, that Moses had thrown to the ground and it turned into a serpent and swallowed up the wannabe staff snakes of Pharaoh's magicians. It was this staff that Moses struck the Nile with and it turned to blood. Joshua witnessed this. It was this staff that Moses held up over the Red Sea and divided it in two. And, and is this staff that most recently struck a rock that they then drank from. Okay, are you with me? This thing is significant. So when he brings in the detail of the staff, Moses is saying to Joshua and to the rest of Israel, hey guys, I'm not looking to your makeshift army for deliverance here. I'm looking to the Lord. This is going to be about us depending on the Lord, his authority, his presence, his power. Now, again, you have to forgive my imagination, but if I'm Joshua and I hear this detail, I'm kind of pulling Moses aside and going, you know, Moses, if, if you're going to do the thing with the stick, why do we have to fight? Why do we have to do the, the sword thing if you're going to do the stick thing, you know? Let's talk risk management. <laughs> Battles are, are messy and unpredictable, and quite frankly, they're dangerous, right? Just roll with the plague. That devastating hail in Egypt, that was awesome. Let's do that, right? Or maybe we, we can switch it up, send some poison-filled safari ants to swarm their camp and pinch their little malachite bottoms, right? It'll be epic and effective. Let's do it. Bring out the stick. Let's just avoid further losses, whatever we do. Now, my imagination is twisted, but it does raise a legitimate question. Up to this point, God alone has defended his people. Israel's not had to take up arms. They haven't had to fight. So why are they now called to do this? Well, if we step back from the historical context and view this from a broader perspective of redemption, there's an interesting transition here. Israel's deliverance out of bondage and slavery in Egypt was completely God's doing. It was a work initiated by God's grace and fully accomplished by God's power. At the plagues, at the Passover, at the Red Sea, 
God says to his people, stand and watch me work salvation for you. But now, in the wilderness, having tasted undeserved redemption, he calls Israel to play an active part in their sanctification. Are you with me? If I could borrow Paul's theology from Philippians 2, 12 to 13, this is Israel's call to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it is God who works in them and through them right, to accomplish his good pleasure. And in Egypt, they were passive recipients of grace, but now in the wilderness, they are active participants of grace, empowered by God to engage the enemy within and the enemy without. Why? That they might be holy and they may be set apart unto the Lord. So yeah, Israel's now required to uh, stir up some dust and fight. Uh, but they do so with this in view. Okay? Don't lose sight of that. They're going to go into battle knowing it is God who fights for them and God who fights through them. Look at verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So the two sides join in conflict below, and Moses positions himself on the hill where he can see and be seen. And he's accompanied by Aaron, his brother, and Hur, who is new to us here. Okay, like Joshua, he jumps into the scene, no introduction. We really don't know a lot about her, other than perhaps he had a slightly traumatic childhood. Uh, just picture, I choose her to be on my team. <laughs> what? She can't play with us. No, no, not her. Her. Him, her. Oh, her, sure. There is a her that shows up later in Scripture, but we're not certain it's the same her as the her here. There's also external evidence in Josephus' writing that identify her as the husband of Miriam, which would make him Moses' brother-in-law. We have no way of confirming this. Don't quote me on this, but it would make sense to have his brother and his brother-in-law accompany him. Verse 11. This is how it goes down. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So picture this. Positioned on the hill, Moses lifts his hands to heaven. This is a posture of dependence and complete trust upon the Lord. And at first, Israel is successful. Joshua's initial uh, strike is, is pushing the Amalekites back. But there is no knockout punch in the first round like Egypt. This battle goes the distance and Moses perseveres. He keeps his hands up, but minutes of struggle stretch into hours of agonizing conflict, and his hands get weary. I picture him switching hands, switching hands. And this goes on and on and on, and it says his hands finally come down at his side, and the staff is lowered, and Amalek prevails. Again, the arms go up, and Israel mounts an attack. But he is exhausted, 
and the arms rest at his side. The staff lowered as a result of fatigue, and Amalek makes a striking advance. Back and forth, the scenario plays out, the balance of power shifting in the hands of Moses. When lifted and exalted, Israel experiences God at war. And when the staff drops from sight, they discover what they can accomplish on their own. Their hope literally hinges on the rising and falling of the staff. And this presents a problem and needs a solution. Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So having identified this pattern, finally they clue into this, and they recognize Moses' limitations, and Aaron and her jump into action. Sit here, we're going to grab a side, we're doing this. Poor Moses. You know, I, I tried doing this earlier. It's not easy. It's not a heavy staff, but when you try to do this for like 10 minutes, 20 minutes, yay, yay, yay. Verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. I want you to notice something. There's an interesting word just prior to this when it says, his hands were steady. Bringing about verse 13. That word is the Hebrew word emuna, which means faithful. So think about this. With the resources given him and the support of his friends, Moses is able to remain faithful over the battle, right? And then verse 13, Joshua prevails with the people. Israel emerges triumphant. We began with Joshua getting the swords ready, and now we return to Joshua, overwhelming with the sword. And what is sandwiched in the middle? What is central here? The staff of God, right? So we have the sword and the staff. We have human responsibility and divine sovereignty. But let's be really clear on this. All things are not equal here. The text makes that so clear. Joshua's sword is effective, but it is the staff of God that is decisive in this battle. This is what matters. This is what changes the game. And we know Joshua and Moses and Aaron are all important characters, but Yahweh is the central figure. It's Yahweh who empowers his people to fight. It's Yahweh who will now pronounce judgment on Amalek. It's Yahweh who will be commemorated by Moses' altar. Look at verses 14 to 16. God's people remember a righteous judgment and a royal banner. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. So God pronounces divine judgment on Amalek and instructs Moses to record it in a book and to recite it in the ears of Joshua. And for Joshua, hearing this decree 
in his ears is intended to instill a really important truth in his heart as Israel's military commander. It is God who secures victory in battle. Joshua, get this deep in your heart. Israel's success is not due to the size or skill or strength of her army, but it depends on her ability to cry out to the Lord and to depend on the Lord and look to the Lord for help and salvation. This is his fight after all. Look at the language God uses. I will utterly blot out Amalek. God takes personal ownership for exacting righteous judgment. Yeah, he's going to use Joshua's faith and obedience, right, to carry this out. But the first matter of importance for Joshua to hear is the battle belongs to the Lord. Okay? So this was for Joshua and his generation. Recite this, hear this. But it's also to be written down for Israel's future generations. They would meet the Amalekites again. I don't have time to trace it, but there's a long history with the Amalekites because King Saul doesn't mop up in 1 Samuel 15. And, and when they do, it's really important that they remember the judgment that God had placed on their enemies. Amalek was treacherous. Okay, he, had, he had jumped on the rear of their camp and had killed non-combatants. And God says, your people are going to be destroyed for this. And he wants them to remember. So this, this written inscription would remind them to take this judgment seriously. To honor God's holiness and act in accordance with his righteous judgment. So significance for Joshua, significance for Israel's future generations. But I would argue if we lean in here and listen to the text, there's something of even greater significance for us. There is profound truth resonating here in God's words. More than just a curse against the Amalekites, this divine decree is God's declaration of war against every enemy that will oppose and oppress his people. Because of God's uncompromising holiness, hear this, he is unrelenting in his commitment to fight your enemies. Okay? <laughs> He's going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with Satan. He's going to deal with death itself. And if you're part of God's people, this is an incredible encouragement. I hope that encourages you. And if you're opposing the Lord, this isn't good news. Because if we follow the trajectory of this promise, it actually points us to a future and final judgment that awaits everyone who, like Amalek, practices wickedness and does not fear God. So yeah, these are significant words. Write them down, Moses. Put this memorial in writing. Moses then will build a memorial of worship. Look at verse 15. And Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. So Israel's first military skirmish, resounding success. And, and Moses wants to commemorate this by building an altar. Celebrate that victory. 
Now, this practice of building an altar, not for sacrifice, but for remembrance and worship, is common among the patriarchs. Noah and Abraham and Jacob all did this as a way of making a significant historical event kind of cemented and a way to honor the Lord's work among them. So the altar would stand as a tangible and enduring testimony of God's character and God's activity. That's what Moses is doing here. He wants the people to understand that beneath the staff of God, Israel had actually fought and prevailed under the banner of the Lord. And so he builds the altar. Its name is Yahweh Nisai, the Lord, my banner. This is another one of the divine names that we run into in the Exodus. And it's fitting in this context because it carries military connotations. Mark Dunn notes, a banner is a military standard. It's a cloth or flag bearing an army's insignia and raised on a pole. It's the signal around which an army can be gathered or regrouped. It establishes identity, inspires courage, and reminds soldiers of the authority under which they fight. That's what a banner is. And for Israel, the banner they would rally around and fight under is none other than Yahweh himself. And then we come to verse 16. And I just want to end my sermon here. (laughs) Quite a puzzling statement. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is by far the most difficult part of the text to interpret and understand. Moses' abrupt statement lacks literary detail needed for us to place its original meaning and intended meaning clearly. And in my reading, I found a lot of ink has been spilled attempting to make sense of this word picture, but I'm going to spare you the footnotes this morning and cut to the heart of the question. Whose hand is Moses referring to here? Is this a reference to his own hand, holding up the staff of God, reaching up to heaven in dependence and faith and and laying hold of the promises or the throne of God, so to speak? Or does this refer to Amalek's hand, raised against the throne of the Lord, a hostile gesture to challenge God's authority? Well, there's evidence for both, but I wonder if Moses' closing words don't tip us slightly in favor of the latter. Because it would make sense for him to close then with an emphasis on the Lord's judgment if this was a reference to Amalek's arrogant rebellion and defiance. He declares war on Amalek from generation to generation. This brings us to the end of the text, the end of our study, where I want us to ask the question, what relevance does this passage hold for us today? What do we do with this? I would suggest we can make relevant application from the characters we encounter here and the truths they represent. Let's begin with Amalek, who illustrates the truth that we face treacherous enemies. Be it the world, the flesh, or the devil, I want you to know this morning that the enemies of your soul are not noble, they are not honorable. They are vicious, 
merciless, and opportunistic. If you have a weakness, they will exploit it. If you are yet young in your faith or weary from hard miles of travel or spiritually straggling, you will not be spared. When you least expect it, in the moment you are most vulnerable, you will be ambushed. Your enemies will seek to cut you off from a community of faith and destroy your faith if they're able. So in Amalek, we have insight into the character and strategy of our enemies, and we need to take that seriously. Secondly, we can emulate Joshua, who represents our call to engage the fight. Isn't it funny how we try to convince ourselves that our Christian experience should look something like this? A playground. When in reality, God's word clearly teaches us that it's really something more like this. A battleground. And when we consider the pattern of redemption, this really shouldn't surprise us. In his mercy, God ransoms Israel out of captivity and oppression in Egypt only to lead them into crisis and conflict in the wilderness until they reach the promised land. Does that sound familiar? God has won the war of our salvation, but he now calls us to wage that war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The New Testament is consistent in its witness that believers must be active in this fight. As long as we journey in this world, this side of heaven, we are at war. So strengthened by the grace of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are to war against the enemy within and the enemy without. Look at some of the New Testament teachings on this. Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Peter puts it this way, behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, desert wanderers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. They're doing it towards us. Okay, it's happening. And most famously, Paul writes of our spiritual adversary, the external enemy, this in Ephesians 6, 10 to 14. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all 
to stand firm. Friends, in the spirit of Joshua, we are called to engage the fight. Thirdly, in the example of Moses, this is the one that resonated with me this week. We learn that we need others if we are to remain faithful in this fight. Think for a minute how this scene might have played out if Moses tried to go this alone. What might have gone differently if he had sought to engage this struggle like a man, right? All alone on the hilltop. A very different outcome, I would imagine. Moses was uniquely called by God. He was equipped by God. He spoke with the authority of God. And yet none of these things made him immune to his own weaknesses and limitations. Moses needed others. He needed Joshua. He needed Aaron. He needed her, whoever her was. And as we're going to see in the next chapter, he will go on to need the strength and help of others even more in greater ways. Friends, the point is clear. We need each other. No matter how strong, how gifted, how godly you are, there are going to be times in your journey that your suffering and your struggle are going to demand more than you can give. And you're going to have to have the humility of Moses to reach out to an Aaron or a her in your life and say, hey, I'm having a hard time here. I'm trying. I want to be faithful in this fight. I want to stay engaged, but my hands are weary. I'm exhausted. It's too much for me. Most of you don't know my journey, but I know what it's like to look my wife in the eye, to look a friend in the eye and say, I'm so broken. I'm so burnt out. I'm exhausted. And my faith is going numb. Please help me. It's a humbling place to be. But if you've been there too, you know what a gift it is to have the help of spiritual family and friends in the context of a local church who come to your side and say, hey, we're here for you. I get it. You're not Superman. Here, here's a rock. Sit down. Let me hold up your arm. I'll give you my strength. I'm going to give you my presence. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to help you re-engage the fight. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. It's such a gift to have people do that in your life. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 captures this so well. Let us consider how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. That's our commission as a church. We need others if we're to remain faithful. Don't go this alone. And finally, and I would argue most importantly, we exalt Christ our banner of victory. Yahweh Nisai. Long ago, the prophet Isaiah wrote this incredible promise. Isaiah 10, 11, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. 
the nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Isn't that cool? Isaiah's prophecy would find its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who now stands as a banner for God's people, those who rally to him from every nation and behold his glory. You see, it was Christ who ascended a hillside to be lifted up on our behalf, arms outstretched and nailed to a cross. He suffered on our behalf, and he was faithful until the enemy was overwhelmed, and he cried out, it is finished. And the story doesn't end there. The prophecy doesn't end there. Philippians 2, we know that Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him. The word is super exalted him, highly exalted him, and has given him the name above every other name. Friends, exalted at the right hand of the Father, raised in glory and power, is the Lord Jesus Christ right now. And what's he doing there? What's his ministry? He is faithful to intercede for you and I, his hands lifted up over our battle. Look what the author of Hebrews writes. He says, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, that's thoroughly, completely, till it's done, those who draw near to him through God, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, because of Christ's atoning death and his glorious resurrection and his unbroken intercession, you will fight and you will prevail. Somebody hit me with an amen. That's what Jesus is doing for us right now. And if you walked in here this morning with heaviness in your heart or hands that are weary, maybe you're harassed by an enemy. I want to encourage you this morning, hear from my heart to yours. Lift your eyes from the battle and look to your banner, the exalted Christ. Okay, it's here under this banner that we find our identity, we find our authority as believers. It's here under Christ, that we define our cause and our confidence as a church. This is why we gather. This is what we rally around. And it's here that we remember and we worship. 